Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history, using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you have found the world's finest podcast about music being transmitted from a UFO. So uh, today, we're going to start you off with a little bit of trivia. All right, today I'm going to start us off with the non-audio trivia, and this one, Joe, is called Right Place, Wrong Time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, name you a little person uh, and give you a little side story. Like a little person like Hervé Villages? (laughs) No, no, they're mostly regular sized. And so I want you to tell me what band they quit right before that band made it huge. Oh, okay, okay, cool. I like that. That's good. Yeah, so I'm going to start you off with uh, with a, a pretty easy one. Pete Best is the original Pete Best, and apparently George Martin was very unimpressed. Beatles. That's correct. All right, number two, Keith Levine quit this punk band, but eventually hooked up with John Lydon to start Public Image Limited. Is it is it a Manchester band? No. New York Dolls. Nope. The only band that matters. Ramones? (laughs) The other band that matters. Who is it? The Clash. Oh, I was going to... Oh, crap. I was going to say The Clash. Yeah. All right. Arabian Prince left the recording sessions for this record, which is one of the genre's most groundbreaking albums, because he was not getting paid fast enough. Luckily, he got writing credit on the title track, which probably has bought him a car or two. Is Cars a hint? No. Okay. I don't recognize that name. So it could be, for as far as that goes, it could be any genre then. Let's see. Um, Arabian Prince was probably not his real name. They like to come straight out of somewhere. NWA? Yes, correct. All right, you'll get this one. Angus McLeese quit the most successful uncommercial band of all time because they were because he thought they were selling out when they played their first show at a high school dance where they got paid. Velvet Underground. That is correct. Glenn Matlock got kicked out of his band because he liked the Beatles and the Monkees, and he apparently didn't like heroin enough. Flying Burrito Brothers. <laughs> nope. The Sex Pistols. Okay, I couldn't... Okay, that makes sense. Okay. Jason Everman basically flunked out of two of the biggest bands of the 90s. He uh, joined the army instead. Okay. Um, I think that this is Pearl Jam for one of them? Nope. Oh, it's not. I thought that that was... I thought that was one of those guys who was in Nirvana or... Pearl Jam, or one of those Seattle he bands. Was in Nir- two of them. He was in Nirvana, and what was the other biggest Seattle band around the time? Soundgarden. Oh, okay, okay. He was in and then either kicked out or left both Soundgarden and Nirvana. Anyways, Tony Chapman decided he didn't like their raucous take on the blues, and he quit this band. What's his name again? Tony Chapman. The Who? Nope, The Rolling Stones. Doug Doug Sandum has lived too old, all the way into his 30s, to be in this band. He pretty much thought the guitar player was always a wanker anyways. Man, I'm getting crushed on this. You, you know this one. Which English band had multiple people dying in their 20s, right? Basically? Eh, I think you're misreading my clue. Which band hopes they die before they get old? The Who... That was the who. Okay. Yeah, you just had it. I just okay. keep going all over the place. I, they're all running through my head. Correct. <laughs> just in the You're wrong in, order. You're in the right place, but the wrong time. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. This might be one of my worst ever. Yeah. But I, that's fine. It's been a really long couple weeks. Yeah, we, we're warm. <laughs> I'm going to. All right. Here we go. I'm You're going to get this one. Okay. I got the Velvet Underground. <laughs> Tracy Guns formed this band with a bandana-clad lead singer giving these hard rockers their silly band name. 
Guns and Roses. Absolutely. All right. Okay. And last one. I've actually, uh, in a bar in New Orleans, I ran into Mrs. Guns. Go ahead. <laughs> that's, all that's all I'm going to tell you about that story. <laughs> that sounds like its own turntable talk. Dick Evans had his band continue on without him because his monosyllabic brother was the better guitarist. What was his Dick Evans? Dick Evans. The Smiths. Oh, very close. It was U2. All right. Uh, that was not your most successful trivia, but uh, hopefully a few people out there in podcast land got, got some of them right. All right. And uh, you got some audio for me? I do. This is going to be pretty straightforward here, except with a twist. I'm going to play six clips. I would like for you to identify the song, the artist, and tell me whether the person singing is alive or dead. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, song, singer, and alive or dead. Correct. One of them is singers, but I think you'll be fine. Here we go. Track one. So they should all be fairly recognizable, at least. Yeah, I've got uh, most of them, I think. Okay, um, good, good. There's actually a couple. I am not, not sure if they're alive or dead, I'm, but we'll get to that later. That was kind of the idea. All right. Oh, man, there's one I meant to do, and I totally forgot to put it in. Darn it. Do you know if Del Shannon's alive? Del Shannon is definitely dead. I don't know. I got the Wikipedia <laughs> yet, but I wanted to use it. Hey, Dale Shannon, if you're out there, uh, email the podcast and let us know that you're alive. And if you're not out there, if you're dead, we'll just assume if we don't hear from you that you are dead. Or at least run away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. That was... <laughs> it's going to be a long night. <laughs> All right. I think it's time for Turntable Talk. Everybody is talking at me I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind Part of the allure of vinyl music is the manifestation of a moment or a person captured eternally. Heroes, villains, legends, whispers are left in the grooves. Each record is a clue towards something greater. Sometimes these clues are researched, prodded, and doted over, that all the mystery has been sucked dried and left the music as a dissected cadaver, lifeless and academic. But sometimes the records provide just a glimpse into something far more murky, obscured by patchy documentation, half-remembered anecdotes, whispered rumors, or outright lies. Our show has been dedicated to the illumination of the fringes of the vinyl record and their creators and peddlers. Choosing to dig into rare wax artifacts and mostly forgotten weirdos of the industry. Calling forth stories of greatness, near greatness, and downright failures. And mostly the unearthing of rock and roll's greatest unknowns. 
whether due to the lunatic tendencies of the artist or their self-destructive practices, there is no shortage of intrigue and enigma in the annals of pop music history. What became of the rest of the fragments of Sibelius's Lost Eighth Symphony? Where's the location of the crossroads at which Robert Johnson traded his soul for guitar? Who poured gasoline all over Bobby Fuller? And what the hell is that wart on Lemmy's face? Today we try to discover what was truly and utterly lost, looking for more than just a lost gem of an LP or a record label that never met the masses. Today we attempt to locate greatness lost. They're out there, maybe. The woman who created the singer-songwriter genre is playing bingo with your grandma at a nursing home. A barfly muttering at his whiskey, who also masterminded a mysterious psychedelic folk rock album. A smiling stranger on a bus who penned the song that soundtracked the most unforgettable dance scene ever committed to film. Today, we are searching for artists who vanished. Music is riddled with crazy creative types who are lost to society and sanity. Your Sid Barrett's, Arthur Lee's, Brian Wilson's, and Rocky Erickson's. And there are plenty of artists who hung it up despite the allures of fame and adoration. Bobby Gentry plays Johnny Carson in 81 and slips out of the spotlight. Don Van Vliet suddenly retires Captain Beefheart and quietly paints until he dies. Sterling Morrison becomes a tugboat captain. Garth Brooks takes off at the height of his career and comes back as an Australian who sings like Tracy Chapman. Or Meg White pulling a J.D. Salinger, leaving the world's most famous rock duo to live in comfort and seclusion. But we're not talking about artists who left the limelight and retreated to private lives, nor are we talking about the creative souls who abandoned the stage from asylums, prisons, monasteries, or a childhood room in their mother's flat. We are speaking much more literally. We're talking about musicians who vanished completely off the face of the earth, disappeared, never to be seen again. The artists are about as polar opposite as you can imagine. A 50 songstress, 20 years past her disappointing musical misfire of a career. An unknown folky, cruising across the country to try and finally make it big. An androgynous singer whose songs were prominently placed in monster Hollywood hit movies. Each is now gone, their whereabouts unknown. Tragic disappearance. A well-executed withdrawal from society. UFO abduction. All equally likely. And, well, unlikely. Now the dirge of the departed, the stories of Connie Converse, Jim Sullivan, and Q. Lazarus. The whimsical and tragic tale of Connie Converse very well could be deserving of its own turntable talk, along with the wonderful label who brought her music back to life, Squirrel Thing Records. Her music and her life is a testament to the depths of unknown beauty that exist in the world and the fleeting chances we have to be fortunate enough to unearth them. Connie Converse was a musician that was primarily active in New York City in the mid-1950s. Her work is now considered some of the earliest examples of the singer-songwriter genre, full of introspection and creativity and often pain. Simple songs with thoughtful words that delivered emotion, fragile and strong, surprisingly modern but also timeless. During the time she was recording folk music was still dominated by political and story songs, a far cry from the heart heartfelt, touching personal poetry of Converse. Dylan was still half a decade from even moving to New York City. Converse was, by all accounts, a genius child with an intuition, aptitude, and a multitude of academic areas. She graduated valedictorian and received a full scholarship to attend college at Holyoke. She dropped out of school, she moved to Greenwich Village, and eventually Hell's Kitchen in Harlem. Rebelling against her strict Baptist upbringing, she smoked and boozed and performed songs on an acoustic guitar, and she recorded several of them in her apartment using a Crestwood 404 tape recorder. She reveled in the bohemian beatnik counterculture, but also remained an outsider and an observer. During this time, she was very close with her brother, Phil Converse, who moved to the Midwest. In close correspondence, Connie would mail her sibling her self-recorded guitar songs. By all accounts, she was very guarded about her personal life. Speculations arose about her, but very little was actually known. Her life is still a mystery. The songs and future recordings, simply put, are amazing. With finger-picking skills and harmony beyond what one might imagine an amateur could muster, Howard Fishman, in a New New Yorker article, said her playing had become conversant, bordering on virtuosic, in the stylistic hallmarks of rural blues, country, gospel, pop, jazz, hillbilly, parlor songs, and early jazz. 
The songs dealt with loneliness and romantic frustration, an intimate window into an inner world. She continued to record, sometimes with a piano, and eventually befriended animator Gene Deitch, who had recorded Pete Seeger and John Lee Hooker in the 1940s. Deitch, who would continue to record Converse and somehow even arranged a television appearance on CBS's morning show. There are still shots showing Converse nervously strumming next to a young Walter Cronkite. She eventually grew frustrated with not having success in NYC, and in 1961 moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where she worked as a secretary, an editor, and a writer. She mostly ceased writing songs. During this time, she volunteered as an activist and was working on on a novel. By the 70s, she was burnt out and suffering from deep depression and anxiety. In August 1974, a week before her 50th birthday, she mailed letters to friends and family, cryptically suggesting she needed a new life somewhere else. In one letter, she wrote, Let me go. Let me be if I can be. Let me not be if I can't. Human society fascinates me and awes me and fills me with grief and joy, and I just can't find my place to plug in. She packed her belongings in her Volkswagen Beetle and quietly drove away and was never heard from again. Jim Sullivan always belonged in the stars. He was a wanderer seeking something new, unknown, greater, and his songs reflected this desire for the uncertain. Sullivan was born in Oklahoma and floated around in bar bands until he reached Los Angeles. While his wife worked at Capitol Records, he honed his songwriting craft and spent nights playing clubs and hobnobbing with some of Hollywood's more colorful stars, like Lee Marvin, Harry Dean Stanton, and, well, Lee Majors. He also charmed his way into getting some recognition gigs, one as an extra in the movie Easy Rider, and another a performance on the Jose Feliciano television show. He played enough shows at the Malibu Club, at the Malibu Club to pique the interest of some Texas music investors looking to cash in on the California scene. Along with some money scraped up from friend and actor Al Dobb, they paid for Sullivan to have a session with some of the finest L.A. session musicians, members of the Wrecking Crew. The album he created was a great piece of desert rock called UFO. Full of empty space and despair, the album was beautiful and bleak, a psychedelic folk and country rock album, and it did not sell. Sullivan continued to struggle in L.A. In 1975, after the failure of a second album, he decided to try his luck in Nashville, which he thought fit his sound better. Sullivan packed up and left Los Angeles on March 4, 1975, to drive to Nashville alone in his Volkswagen Beetle. All he brought with him was about 120 bucks, his guitar, some copies of his record, and some clothes. The next day, after being cautioned by a highway patrol over his driving, he checked into La Mesa Hotel in Santa Rosa, New Mexico. Various reports say he grabbed some vodka and stayed the night, or they left his keys and he never slept at La Mesa. Either way, the next day he drove 26 miles out to a remote ranch owned by the Gennetti family, who apparently had some mafia ties. His beetle was found abandoned at the ranch, and he was allegedly seen walking away from it by a rancher. The car contained Sullivan's monies, papers, guitar, clothes, and a box of his own sold records. His friends claimed that he would never just abandon his guitar. Jim Sullivan was never seen again after March 5th. Search parties failed to find any trace of him. A decomposed body resembling Sullivan was later found in a remote area several miles away, but was quickly determined not to be his. Various theories have been thrown out there. He was murdered, he became disoriented and got lost, and of course alien abduction. Oddly enough, his first album has eerily coincidental lyrics about desert highways, leaving your family behind, and being abducted. Around the same time, the local sheriff retired and the Genetis moved to Hawaii. Jim's manager, Robert Buster Ginter, later claimed that during an early morning hour, an early morning conversation with Sullivan, they began talking about what they might do if they had to disappear. Jim said he'd walk into the desert and never come back. Aliens, or mob hit, or quicksand. The speculation is seemingly justified. Imagine hopping into a New York City taxi cab and being asked if you're in the music business. Your answer could lead down an interesting or interminable path depending on the driver. This is the situation that Jonathan Demi found himself in. His answer was, not exactly? And that's all the cabbie needed to throw a cassette of her demo that she'd been working hard at getting noticed. 
Jonathan Demme was blown away, and so began the rise of Q. Lazarus. Q. Lazarus, whose real name may or may not be Diane Lucky, was born in 1965 in New Jersey. After a divorce and a stint as a nanny, she started driving cabs in New York City, which is where she landed Jonathan Demme as a fair. Demi encouraged her to move to L.A., raising her hopes that a brilliant music career would be found there. Once there, Q found it incredibly difficult to get a recording contract with record companies telling her that she's simply impossible to market. Many liked her songs, but couldn't think of a way to make a lot of money off of them. Q left L.A. and headed back to New York City and continued playing music around town. And it was there that she met William Garvey, who would go on to write the song that she's most well known for. Goodbye Horses. Q recruited Garvey and others to be in her band, then called Q Lazarus and the Resurrection. In 1986, Jonathan Demme, still a huge fan, had Q appear in his film Something Wild, playing the song The Candle Goes Away. Demme featured a song of hers again in his next film, 1988's Married to the Mob. The song was Goodbye Horses, and it was released again as a single after the film and then again in 1991. In 1991, when Demi began working on his follow-up to Married to the Mob, he decided to use Goodbye Horses one more time in a scene that most of you will know and may know specifically as the Buffalo Bills dance scene from Silence of the Lambs. It's a scene where actor Ted, Ted Levine dances around saying classic lines like, Would you fuck me? I'd fuck me. I'd fuck me hard. Demi had Q appear in one more of his movies, 1993's Philadelphia, in which she performed a cover of the Talking Head song, Heaven. Q's band broke up around 1996, with her last known recording being in an independent film called Twisted. After that, nothing is really known about what may have happened to her or where she might be now. William Garvey, who wrote Goodbye Horses so that he and Q had a falling out and hadn't spoken in years, he assumed she's dead. Garvey himself passed away in 2009. There are no known comments from Demi on whether he'd heard from her after Philadelphia, and he has also passed away, so any information he may have had is also gone. Rumors come and go. There was a MySpace page that people thought might be hers. One person who was acquainted with her claims that Q moved to London, formed a heavy metal band, and got into a relationship with a shady Swedish hustler and junkie named Danny. Information on her Wikipedia changes randomly. Her real name changes. Some weeks she'll be alive on Wikipedia. Some weeks she'll be dead. She's supposed to have royalties owed to her that she's never attempted to collect. A few of her demos from the 80s popped up on iTunes last year, but were removed after a few months. Did she post them? Did Garvey's estate, who wrote some of those songs? Or did Mona B Records, who owned the rights to some of her songs, post those? They also released on Record Store Day a copy of Goodbye Horses a few, uh, two years ago. For nearly 30 years, no one has heard a peep at all from Q. Lazarus. That is, until a few weeks ago, which is August of this year, when musician Kelsey Zimmerman heard from a person on Twitter who claimed to be Q. Here's one of the messages she sent to Zimmerman. Hi, sorry to bother you. I just wanted people to know that I'm still alive. I have no interest in singing anymore. I am a bus driver in Staten Island, I have been for years. I see hundreds of passengers every day, so I am hardly hiding or dead. I've given Thomas Gorton from Dazed Magazine my phone number and address just to confirm I am real. Sorry if this is a boring end to a story. I'm going to come off Twitter soon as I find it odd. Please take note of this message in case anyone else is interested. Thank you. A selfie was posted as well, but it's hard to say if it's actually her or not. It's been 30 years since anybody's seen a photo of her. Zimmerman, however, is 100% positive that this is the real Q Lazarus and goes into detail more about why in a Facebook post that we'll link to in the show notes and on our Facebook page. Unfortunately, the identity of this person claiming to be Q Lazarus has not yet been verified and may never be. Maybe it's her risen from the dead or maybe it's just a hoax. And I suppose we'd be remiss if we didn't mention Richie Edwards, the heroin chic icon, guitarist, and songwriter for the Brit alt rockers, Manic Street Preachers. On the eve of an American tour, he left a hotel room, grabbed some things from his apartment, and left his car at the service station. 
based on his history of self-harm and mental illness, and that his car was found by Severn Bridge, a well-known suicide spot, it seems pretty clear that Edward sadly took his own life. However, his body never being found, and an Elvis-like penchant for having fans claiming they've spotted him in odd locales have kept this sad situation a rock mystery. A good example of generating myth, often at the expense of honesty. The funny thing is how these musicians seem to gain more life in their disappearances. Their quiet, potentially tragic ends bolster their legend and frame their music. It gives the songs context that they might never have had. More sadness and sweetness to Connie Converse. More mystique and mind expansion to Jim Sullivan. More heart and emotion to Q. Lazarus. These disappearances may always go unsolved. And they may be better left unknown. If these artists are out there, they know far better than us. So what's your impression on the Q. Lazarus thing? Do you think that was her? I, You know, when I was first, I've been looking into her disappearance for a few years now, just kind of finding information about what, what you can. There's very limited. There's There'll be an article in a magazine every once in a while. I assumed she was dead. I think most people did. Um, it sounded like that junkie that one of her friends mentioned was, was real and he was abusive and he kept her away from friends and people. It sounded like... So I think just assuming she had she had passed away somehow uh, quietly somewhere is kind of what most people thought. I don't I don't know I don't know if that's her or not. It's a weird Twitter message. It's a weird it is a weird tweet, and yeah, it's a longer message on the Facebook page so you can read it. And that uh, Zimmerman uh, Kelsey Zimmerman I think claims to have uh, more information that convinces him that uh, that Q Lazarus is alive and is named Diane Lucky uh, like a many people thought there's just no there's no real evidence ever of what her real name is or anything there's just very little information about her so it's hard it's been hard to find her like you can't have uh, the police look for someone whose name you don't really know they're an adult so maybe they wanted to get away so they're not really going to bother and there's just no information about her it's super strange uh, hope she's alive uh, I don't know. Like I was saying earlier, I think one of the weird things is this whole thing about her being found literally occurred like two days after we, you know, finished writing the first draft of this. And one of the strange things is, as I was writing the intro, I just kind of happened to randomly say that person sitting on the bus smiling at you might be one of the, you know, had the highest, you know, best songs in Hollywood or something like that. But I thought it was just really weird that mentioned the bus and she may just very well be a bus driver. This is going to sound awful, but when I first heard about that, I think I, I sent you a message right away, but I first heard, and I we had been putting this thing together, and I was, at first, I was very disappointed that someone <laughs> had been found alive, and then I really thought, what the hell am I thinking? Of course, that's great news, and it actually maybe added a little bit, because now, maybe this is her, maybe it's not. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, yeah it's, it's such a strange, her story is so strange. All right, well, it's time for some songs. We're going to do songs a little bit different uh, this week. We're actually going to play uh, three songs by the artists that we talked about. Here we go. first song that we're going to play is by Connie Converse. It is called Talking Like You, Two Tall Mountains. How about Two Tall Mountains? In between two tall mountains there's a place they call lonesome Don't see Sitting on my windowsill, well he's saying whippoorwill all the night through. See that brook running by my kitchen door, well it couldn't talk no more if it was you. Up that tree, there's sort of a squirrel thing. Sounds just like we did when we were quarreling. In the yard, I keep a pig or two. 
they drop in for dinner like you used to do. I don't stand in the need of company with everything I see talking like you. Up that tree, that sort of a squirrel thing. Sounds just like we did when we were quarreling. You may think you left me all alone, but I can hear you talk without a telephone. I don't stand in the need of company with everything I see talking like you. See that bird setting on my windowsill, really saying whippoorwill all the night through. Just whippoorwill all the night through. In between two tall mountains, there's a place they call lonesome. Don't see why they call it lonesome. I'm Right, that was Talking Like You, Two Tall Mountains by Connie Converse. It's from the album How Sad, How Lovely, which re- was released by Squirrel Thing Records in uh, 2015. Uh, Connie Converse, though she was completely unknown when she was performing, her legacy has grown pretty strong. Uh, in 2004, the uh, animator uh, Deech, I think his name is, or... I don't know how to pronounce it. Anyways, he played some of her recordings on air for a WNYC radio show. And two listeners heard the songs and were totally enthralled and inspired to try to track down anything they could find about her and any more recordings she might have made. Dan Zula and David Herman used the Deech's collections and recordings and also um, tried to track down her brother, uh, in Ann Arbor, who uh, had some some tapes left over in a filing cabinet in Ann Arbor, and they made a 17-track collection called How Sad, How Lovely. It was originally on Launderette Records in 2009 and eventually uh, popped up in 2015 on Squirrel Thing Recordings. Um, Squirrel Thing Recordings also puts out some beautiful, a beautiful record by Molly Drake, who's uh, Nick Drake's mom. It's definitely worth uh, checking out, too. But um, Connie's life and music is kind of taken a life of its own and been the inspiration between behind documentaries and plays and tribute albums and dance pieces. And there's some rumor that they're working on a box set of her complete recordings. I don't know how many more recordings they have, but that would definitely be something to, to find. But I would highly recommend grabbing a copy of her, of that how sad, how lovely it's, it's just gorgeous, gorgeous music. And just, there's really nothing like it. All right, the second song, I think we've already played a Jim Sullivan song on one of maybe the early, early episodes. Some, some of you uh, long fan, long-time fans may, may think that we're uh, cheating, but this is the first time we've ever repeated artist. This is Jim Sullivan with his song, Jerome.
Jerome um, off UFO, which originally was released on Monty Records in 1969, but um, most people have a copy from Light in the Attic Records that they put out in 2011. Matt Sullivan, uh, no relation, uh, who's the Light in the Attic's founder, had heard um, the UFO album on a music blog, and he, much like the other two guys, became totally enthralled with, with Jim Sullivan's record. So eventually he was able to track down a used copy or he found a used copy and it just kind of seeded this obsession in him. And so he spent a long time trying to track down the truth behind the mystery of what happened to, to Jim Sullivan. He took a cross-country pilgrimage in search of master tapes and, and tried to find out the truth of what was going on. He didn't find either the master tapes or the truth, uh, despite hundreds of phone calls and emails and letters and faxes and private detectives. Uh, he says he used palm readings, telepathy, and he met with Jim's wife, son, and producer. But still, nobody really knows what happened. So anyways, in 2011, he, Light in the Attic Records, gave UFO the re-release it so desperately deserved, and the rest is history. It, it became a record that many, many people, you know, fell in love with, including myself. And so um, we're happy that Light in the Attic, like they do with so many other songs, saved save this record that people can have access to it. The last song we're going to do today is Goodbye Horses, who, uh, which is a song many of you have heard. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and play it now. It's Q Lazarus, Goodbye Horses.
All right, that was Goodbye Horses from Q Lazarus. That was uh, originally released on the Married to the Mob soundtrack in 1988, and that's the shortest of three versions that were released. Uh, this was released as a single in 1991, and the three versions that were released as far as length goes is there's one just over three minutes, one just over four minutes, and one at nearly seven minutes, and that's the one that people seem to really search for. It's, it costs hundreds of dollars. It's never been reissued. It was um, originally in, in 91, it was released on All Nations Records. Um, it's since been reissued, but only the short version, for Record Story a couple years ago on Mona Me Records. William Garvey, who was in Q's band The Resurrection, is the person who wrote the song. And he claims it's a song about transcendence, but it, it just sounds sort of pretentious to go through his quote. It's a really great song. If you can find a way to separate it from Silence of the Lambs, although it's perfect there too, um, it serves a lot of other purposes as well. It doesn't have to be about some guy dancing around about to kill somebody else. So it's a great, great song. One of my favorites ever. And I was actually, I remember when Silence of the Lambs came out and they played that song and I was like, ah, oh, crap. More people are going to hear a song that only, I think only I know. Um, <laughs> kind of an, an asshole record store guy thing to do that I know something nobody else knows, but I'm really glad other people know the song. It's wonderful. I think not only do people know it, they can never not know it now. <laughs> <laughs> I think all we have left today is to handle a little bit of trivia. All right. So once again, I'm going to play these six clips again, last time, and all I need from you is the singer, the song, and then tell me if that person who is singing or people in one case, is alive or dead. Here we go. Track one. What do you got? Okay, I think the first song is Little Richard. Yes. I didn't recognize the song. It didn't sound like one of the big ones. I tried to throw you off on that one. It's it's actually Long Tall Sally. I just picked part of the song that would be the hardest to recognize. Okay. And then I think Little Richard is still alive. He is. He okay. is alive. Very good. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Um, okay. The second song is Jerry Lee Lewis, and I believe the song is Rocket 88. It is not. Oh, I thought he mentions Ro or going in 88 or whatever. Uh, it's um, it's actually Wild One. Okay, all right. Well, I think he's alive too. He is. Yep, we're keeping this on a positive note. Now, if you're listening to this in the future, both of those people are dead, depending on when <laughs> in the future you're listening to this. <laughs> There's not an Aretha Franklin question, is there? I almost picked her. I was, yeah. Okay. Um, R.I.P. All right. The third song is Paul McCartney uh, with Temporary Secretary. Okay. I don't know how you want me to answer this question, if he's alive or dead. The man, the man who sang that is still alive. The man who, oh, the man who actually sang that is still alive. Yes, yes. Yes. Okay, fair enough. But yeah. is that man Paul McCartney? 
I don't know. That's that's okay. not part. I didn't have to okay. answer that. Trick question. So, all right. Next. <laughs> Couldn't fool me on that. All right. Well, yeah. The next uh, song is the Traveling Wilburys with Skeeter and the Monkey Man. Tweeter. 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 Yep. Tweeter. Yep. Skeeter. Tweeter and the Monkey Man. We're hard up for cash. Hey. Yeah. Tomato, tomato. Um, so, uh, <laughs> who sang that song? See, I thought that was a, I thought that was a Dylan song, and so I specifically put in the part where they were all singing chorus. Okay, so they're mostly dead. You tell me which ones are dead and which ones are alive. Roy Orbison's dead. Tom Petty's dead. George Harrison's dead. Bob Dylan's alive, and Jeff Lynne is. You know, he'll never die. Okay. In our so hearts. You are correct. You're, you're correct in all of that. Very good. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure Jeff Lynn's still alive, too. So. Yes, he is. So he's got that. I wish, they, I that wish am- they all were. That amazing hair. Okay. The fifth song, I don't know who it was. I thought it was maybe George Clinton. It is not. It's uh, Sly Stone. Oh, Sly Stone. Sly and the Family Stone with... Do you know the song? I, uh-uh, assume. I don't. I don't. I may know it if I went back and listened to it again now that I know who it is. It's thank you for letting me be myself. Oh gosh, I should have recognized that one. It was I picked at it that one. I I started kind of thinking maybe I should put one real tough one in here, but I, that was it. I think he's still alive. I think he's just crazy. He is. Yeah. Yep. Still crazy. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. He's alive. Okay. Good. And the last song is, and this is one of my my favorite songs of all time. It's Chris Bell. I am the Cosmos, and Chris Bell is definitely dead. Yeah, he is dead. Uh, yeah, I love that song. I know you do, too. I was actually going to try to pick one where uh, with uh, Chris Bell and Alex Chilton singing together. But I, I know you know both of those, and it would have been hard to pick a song that we wouldn't that you wouldn't have known. So. He, Alex Chilton's still alive, too, though, right? No, gotcha. He's not. I would have got. I would have beaten you on that one. Dang, did he just dead. die? 2010. That's kind of sad, because neither of them seem like they'd be that old. No, he was born in 1950. So, no, not at all. He was 60 years old. Yeah. Not bad. Not, anyways. And, uh, Chris Bell was really young. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyways, that's a fun quiz. I, I feel pretty pretty good about how I did on that. Good. You did great. So. <laughs> the opposite of how I did with yours, but it was still fun. So much better than you did. Yep. Well, I think that does it for another fantastic episode of the Highway Hi-Fi podcast. As always, public service announcement, go spend some money on records. I spent a lot of money on records this week, like uh, way too much money on records. I was telling Joe about it. I don't want to tell you what I bought because I will probably be playing those very shortly in future episodes. But uh, yeah, it's fun. It made me feel good. This uh, The podcast gives us a good excuse to, like I said, well, somebody, you know, if I buy it, for the podcast, then, you know, I'll bring warmth and joy to many people and, and help maybe sell another couple copies of that record. Claim it as an expense on your taxes. <laughs> it is. It is. I'm, I'm writing the losses and the losses are piling up. <laughs> do we have any social media? Uh, we do. Yes. We have a uh, tweeter, uh, tweeter and the monkey man. We have a tw- we have a Twitter <laughs> Skeeter. feed, Skeeter and the Monkey. We've got a an account on Skitter. Um, <laughs> our Twitter handle is Highway Hi-Fi Pod. Uh, we have a Facebook page. Join us, follow us, whatever you can do. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, as as always, please uh, somebody at least one other review has gone up. It's been really wonderful for anybody who's done that. And we've got to go to iTunes if you can. And leave us a, a review. Let us know. Rate it. Uh, whatever, whatever you, whatever you want to rate it. Uh, just get it up there. More people would then be more likely to see and hear the podcast, which is what we would really love. Absolutely. Well, uh, we, as always, we appreciate it. Um, and uh, this was kind of a fun episode to do. I think all three of the artists were just so different. So it was kind of fun to piece together a episode of three kind of different topics and you know joe and i kind of shared writing duties on it so that was kind of fun to to kind of see how we can blend our concepts and our ideas so we hope you enjoy it we're always trying kind of different things to kind of keep things yeah fresh and interesting so all of them could have been a full 
turntable talk, but they also are missing a lot. There's a lot of information missing, so it would have been would have been difficult, I think, to do. Connie Converse probably would have been the easiest for for getting length, maybe. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I, I um, go check out that Squirrel Thing Records. Um, their their websites very nice but but the the music they put out there's not many things it's very much a, a labor of love but both the connie converse record and the molly drake record are just gorgeously put together in the music's fantastic stuff and it's just very very original so i really appreciate them putting out that sort of music uh saving it from from being you know lost forever yeah uh, if anybody out there wants to send us or on Facebook or Twitter, let us know what your who your favorite disappeared artist is. It'd be kind of fun to see who we missed, who we didn't even, who we totally forgot. Yeah, I'm sure there are out there. other ones, but oh yeah. Anyways, well, we hope you all have a great day or night whenever you're listening to it, and we will uh, see you next time. Interminable, interminable. Interminable. <laughs> what is it? It's interminable. That's what I said. No. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.